not going to take the time to introduce Dr. Carson too much, except to say I think that probably all of us uh, have profited from his ministry in some degree. That's probably why you're here. Um, I remember starting out in ministry as a Baptist pastor in Southern California, read the Sermon on the Mount, um, a little commentary that he wrote, and then I gagged through the gagging of God. I thought, man, that's more than I know. And a uh, number of other different places that uh, God has led Dr. Carson to write and just tremendously profited from that. So, Dr. Carson, thank you again. And uh, I'm going to open a word of prayer, and then uh, he's expressed a willingness to just take kind of an open forum questions. So, however you want to do that, I am strictly here as the moderator. And I told him, if you get a question you can't answer, don't look at me. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not saying I'm leaving him by himself, but I'm saying I'm leaving him by himself. So uh, he will deal with that, and so we're thankful for the opportunity to do that. Let me, let me pray, and let's begin. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. We heard about that this morning. All of us, if it's really truthful, we would stand back just in awe of your grace and to wonder, why me? And um, to see how that's done. We, uh, we don't understand, but we're recipients, and we thank you for that. Now, Father, we want to sharpen our minds and the tools that you've given to us for ministry. I pray that you would uh, help us do this today. Thank you for Dr. Carson. Thank you for the, the uh, uh, tool that uh, you've given him. Thank you for his mind, for his heart. Thank you for sharpening him. I pray that, uh, Father, what you do through him would sharpen us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, we will uh, open that up. And um, Could I say, first of sure. all, that Pastor John's introduction is a lot kinder than the one that was given to me uh, by a friend of mine in the East who should know better. Um, <laughs> he, he, he had these open sessions during the week on occasion where, where a lot of non-Christians were brought in, and, um, and, uh, and this was on postmodernism 20 years ago, just after the gagging of God had come out. You know, so in this room filled with 700 people, a lot of them non-Christians, he holds up this book. He says, "This is the gagging of God." It's a big book. <laughs> I've just got one question: Who will gag Don? <laughs> and then he sat down. That was the introduction. Really? So you see, compared with that, boy, you were you really know, gentle. You're, you're supposed to you're supposed to build a speaker up when you introduce <laughs> him. So I was trying to do that. And if you've never read that, that is uh, it's a wonderful. It is big. Well, it's a great doorstop. It's a, no, it's a it's a it's a it's a good reading book. So it's, it's got lots of blessings in it. Doorstop puts you to sleep at night. And it looks impressive. It looks impressive. Big yeah. books on the shelf. Right. They look, look good. Paperweight. Yeah, we yeah. better let's get to it. So. If you haven't read Gagging God, that's a good commercial, so uh, I'd commend it to you. So how can we open up questions that you would like to have addressed uh, to Dr. Carson? Um, so who would be first? I think everybody here can hear, so I, if you'll just speak up so that we can all hear that and make sure we have that right, that would be helpful. So who would be first? Any questions? That's what I hear. Well, it's a, a generic question, and a lot depends on where you are. Um, supposing it's in a church where I'm pastor, um, if the person who is 
speaking against the Bible, it's, it's part of an open Q&A time. I, I let them run and then answer it. Uh, if it's some, something on, uh, on mass media or something and it's just typical of the day, um, usually I, I don't respond because, be, because there is a time and a place for strategic response where you have a whole structure or an article or a book or a speech or something. But if you get into the attitude where every time you hear something that you, you think is a little off-center, you have to respond, then you end up in a kind of reflexive reactionary mode. Everything is defensive. So some things are better handled um, by articulating the truth in the right context and your, yourself. I don't, I don't think there's a generic answer to it. Uh, but some things are so wicked, so evil in a context where people are getting hurt that it really is important to, to respond. But then I would also say it's important to respond in such a way that you're maximally winsome. In today's uh, post-millennial world, uh, you can lose an argument um, by being right but mean. So you have to be winsome. I mean, you should be in any case. But in today's culture, you especially have to be winsome. <laughs> or, 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 else, or else even if you're right and formally, um, well, e even before this, this came along, there was a theologian at the University of Chicago a number of years ago, late 60s, uh, Thomas Altizer, who, uh, who made famous the, the, the God is dead theology. It, 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 the, the God is dead theology died after about 10 years. But for a while, it was very popular. And one of our guys at Trinity, who's long since left, I won't tell you his name, but he was known as a great debater. So there was a debate po hosted at, at, um, at U University of Chicago between a guy from Trinity, where I am, and, and, and Thomas Altizer. And Thomas, Thomas Altizer had all the students with him and, and so on. And um, the debate was an evening debate. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds present, both from Trinity and, and from University of Chicago. And just about everybody there agreed that intellectually, our guy wiped the floor with him. But the other guy won the sympathy vote. Partly because he was half drunk and just seemed like a bit of a dawdler. And if, if our guy had just shown a little more kindness and winsomeness and a sense of humor, a bit of self-deprecation, you know, he, 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 he would have won. Not all arguments are won by uh, superior intellect. So what... What role does drinking play in public <laughs> speaking? <laughs> let me um, Ex extra fluidity. Yes, let me uh, ask if you can, if you can move in. I guess there's some people back there, so if you're on the edges, if you can move into the center. And we do have there are more seats back up here. Nobody wants to sit in front, Peter. Okay, and then I'm going to try and repeat the question. So if you get too complicated for me to understand we're in trouble, but I will try and repeat it for the sake of recording. Let's go over here. So the question would be, how would you advise somebody in the church to deal with a board that is uh, um, condoning egalitarianism? Would that yeah, be the question? A member of the church. Member of the church. Okay. It's complicated as well. Um, in, in the first place, I'd want them to read two or three things so that they're, 
so that complementarianism or egalitarianism are not just slogan positions, but that they've worked through some passages. If, 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 if they haven't read anything in the area, I'd recommend the little book by Claire Smith called God's Good Design, partly because it's understated, it's exegetically faithful, and she takes pains to show that it is a good design. So it's not just winning an argument, it's winning a whole cultural perspective. The, the second thing I'd argue is that, is that although complementarianism has often been badly handled, it, it comes across as merely a position in which you say no. When complementarianism is well handled, um, in, in fact, Christians go to their way for finding places where you're busy saying yes. The Gospel Coalition, um, of which I'm the president, uh, everybody knows is complementarian. We also run the largest, I, I, I think, if I may say so, most biblically exegetical women's conference in the country. We're, we're, we're running weekend training centers all over the country to teach women to teach the Bible well. We don't want to be associated with no. We think that there is a pattern in Scripture that is good and godly and ultimately for the good of both men and women and can be abused by either. And when I look around the country, uh, complementarianism is not something for which we focus on the no, but for which we focus on the, f on the family. When half the kids born in the country are born into one-parent homes, we've got troubles down the road. We've got huge troubles down the road. And you don't fix that by a little bit of social legislation. You fix it with strong families. And so, so I would paint the bigger picture rather than just an issue on yes or no for w women's ordination, which is interesting and has some importance, but it's not the end of the world. It's, it's, it's a bigger issue that, that, that has to be thought through carefully and, and wisely and humbly. And um, so apart from that, I would nevertheless say that it is at one level a secondary issue. It's not nearly as important as substitutionary atonement. It's not as important as the deity of Christ. And if in the region where they are, the church that they're in is the only one that's a gospel church and they go, in their opinion, off track on that issue, yeah, well, you, you might not like it, but it's not the end of the world. On the other hand, if there are other alternatives in the uh, vicinity that don't seem quite so beholden to cultural agendas, maybe that's something to consider too. But it's, it's not something that you're going to handle with a mere proof text. Let me throw something else in there. I don't know how, if you've heard of Simeon Trust, We've, um, we've done a number of things here with Simeon Trust to teach women how to teach women and do all the exegetical tools that you can and all that. It is a, it's a positive side of trying to train women what they can do in the church rather than just saying no. So Simeon Trust, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, one of, the, one of the women on their board, Kathleen Nielsen, uh, was our director of women's initiatives at the, uh, at the Gospel Coalition. Okay, yes, sir. Okay, so how important is it to contextualize the gospel, and uh, does that put us in danger of weakening the gospel? Is that the question? Or the sufficiency? Or the sufficiency. Okay. 
absolutely everything depends on what you mean by contextualize the gospel. There's some contextualization that's going on in the pages of the New Testament so that when Paul is preaching the longest recorded sermon in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, he's preaching in a synagogue context where virtually everyone who hears him shares certain common theological points. There's one God. There's a difference between right and wrong, bound up with morality. Uh, sin is first and foremost defiance of God. Um, history is going somewhere and there's a judgment to face and there's a hell to be feared and a heaven to be gained. Um, uh, sin is paid for by, by sacrifice um, and a whole lot of other kinds of things. Then he gets to uh, Athens in Acts chapter 17. He's got people who have never read the Old Testament. They don't believe there's one God. They don't have a linear view of history or a teleological view of history that's going somewhere. Um, uh, some, of, some of them think that uh, matter is intrinsically bad ver- versus, uh, versus a biblical view of creation and, and so on. So Paul recognizes he has to start a lot farther back. That doesn't mean he's changing his gospel. It means he is contextualizing it. That is, there is a context in which he's speaking, and to be heard and understood in that context is an important responsibility. So in, in, in that sense, if that's what you mean by contextualizing, then you look for the kind of contextualizing that takes the context of the hearer seriously enough that you think through how to get across a faithful message in a way that is contextually plain. But there are forms of contextualization where you end up trimming the gospel in one fashion or another. And it starts from the fact, let's take it to 21st century San Francisco, it starts from the fact that most of the major themes in the Bible have almost no resonance with, w- w- with the culture. S- stop and think now. Um, covenant, temple, priesthood, blood sacrifice, justification, kingship. See, see, I, I, could, I could name 15 or 20. Now, how many Americans are really turned on by kingship? Kingdom of anybody, let alone kingdom of God. And uh, <coughs> how, how many of them are really worried about, about the quality of their priest or can hardly wait to get to temple again because that's where the glory of God is disclosed? I mean, y- y- you, you realize that, that part of the problem in trying to get across the, the gospel in a biblically illiterate generation is that you've got to start a lot farther back. And if instead of doing that, you, you transmute the gospel into something like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's a biblical statement. But how will they hear that? Where does that verse come from? Or where, where does part of the verse come from? Or uh, uh, um, God loves you and, and wants you to have the abundant life. That's where the verse comes from. The abundant life expression is found in one passage, namely John 10, where it's referring to the life of sheep. Um, what are you going to tell people that, you know, Abundant life for sheep means they have a lot of grass. You're going to tell students at Berkeley what they need is a lot of grass? Um, <laughs> they, they might agree. They might agree. You, 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 you realize there's some contextual problems when you're trying to get, 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 get across some things, you see? And, 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 and so, um, so I, I want to argue that increasingly what we have to do is get people into the kinds of exploratory Bible studies that lay out the big picture, that make the category sensible. So, you, you know, some of you know that I'm at Berkeley tonight, but in some ways, being, being at Berkeley for one 
meeting is a hard thing to do because some of the non-Christians that will be there don't have any categories at all that I can latch on to. Um, I'd be much happier to have five meetings at Berkeley because then I can build a picture. Do you, do you, do you, do you see? Um, but you, you do what you can do. You, you do what you do with, with the time you've got. And, um, and uh, so uh, if instead of trying to build up that background so as to explain what the gospel is in the Bible's own categories, if instead of doing that, if you just thunder away using those categories that nobody latches onto, you won't have an audience. On the other hand, if, if you try to build connections and bridges, you have to do so in such a way that you don't domesticate the gospel so that the gospel becomes something that addresses your loneliness or the Bible addresses something that, that handles your self-identity issues or the Bible, you know, or whatever. And, and the point is the Bible does address, address questions of loneliness and self-identity issues. It, do, it does address just about everything. But on the other hand, if that's what the gospel is about, you've got it wrong be, be, because it, it's first of all about how uh, image bearers of God uh, can be reconciled to God af- after their own conduct and life and nature has, has earned the judgment of God and they're under his wrath. And how do you get that across? People don't ask to be saved until they know they're lost. They don't ask to be forgiven until they know they're guilty. They don't ask for life until they know they're under sentence of death. They don't ask for, and so on, so on, so on. And, and one of the hardest things to get across in any university setting today is the, the nature of sin. So um, uh, a few years ago, everybody was into the emerging church movement and the emerging church movement at its worst was pushing so strongly for the contextualization of the gospel that the gospel they were left with was a long way from the biblical gospel. If that's what you mean by contextualization, I'm again it. <laughs> so, so, so a lot depends, you see, on, 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 on definition. And the way you start is by going back again and again and again with others. What is the gospel? What does the Bible expect us to know and believe and do? And within that framework, then it takes some hard work to think through how to present that winsomely and boldly and faithfully and lovingly and, 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 and so on. Uh, and some of the work that you do in that connection will be aware of the context. I mean, so so I'm, I'm here at, at Berkeley tonight. But a few months back, I was at a university in the Middle East. I won't tell you which one, but a Muslim university. And um, let me tell you, that's another world. Nobody's asking... Uh, yeah, but is there such a thing as truth? We're all convinced there's, there's truth. The question is, who's got it? So my approach there is different because it's a contextual difference. So part of my responsibility as a preacher or teacher of the Word of God is to be contextually aware, to contextualize the gospel. But I don't think I reshape the gospel. I'm just repackaging it a wee bit to make sure that I'm addressing where they are as opposed to where kids at Berkeley are. Does that make sense? Uh, let me add something to that. If you want to, I'm sure Dr. Carson will know this, but um, his partner in Gospel Coalition, Tim Keller, has written a great, not a huge book, but it's called Just Preaching. About a third of the way through that, he has, a, he has just a great section on contextualization that I think would answer that question. So I'd commend that to you. Back there. Mm. I guess my question for you is how do I go about So in a football context? Seth? Okay, uh, how would you direct a group of young men to uh, savor biblical teaching? That'd be the question. 
Do you play football? It'll, you look like it. You're yeah. This, was, this, was, this dude's a hunk. He was, he was the defensive player of the game for Oklahoma State uh -huh. two years ago. Oh, I am impressed. Three years ago. I'll have to ask if I can get my picture yeah. taken with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And, uh, I mean, the, the ideal is that there's somebody around who's good at leading such Bible studies. I mean, to, to have... To have person-to-person -person contact, somebody who's leading a good exploratory Bible study with a bunch of hunks and doing it well is, is terrific. A apart from that, it's often a question of what city you're in, what, ch what churches are around that are Bible-teaching churches that have really good exploratory Bible studies. Um, sometimes there's a good group on campus that's particularly good, and that varies from university to university. Um, a, a really good crew group on one campus does not necessarily mean that the crew group on another campus is equally good because it turns on on local leadership. So, so th my, my first my first appeal would would be to ask Christians whom you respect in the particular area uh, the same question: uh, who, who are the best leaders? Who 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 are the most adept at winning people? They're 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 theologically faithful. They're biblically faithful, but but they're winsome. You know, and, and find out at the personal level. Apart from that, there are lots of good books around nowadays, too. Uh, there are evangelistic studies, you know, on Mark. Um, Read, Mark, Learn is one that I, I've used uh, quite a bit in the past from Britain. Read, Mark, Learn. It's, it's an obvious pun, you know, on, because they use the Gospel of Mark. And um, uh, there's another one on John uh, that's, that's similar. Uh, I did one a few years ago. It's a bit upmarket. That, that is, they'd have to be it have to be um, bright football players. Um, most are, of course. The, the <laughs> <really good. laughs> but, but what I do is I take people through the whole Bible in 14 sessions. It's called uh, The God Who Is There. And that's, that's both in a book study, and there's a, there's a study leader's guide as well, and there's a video set for it as well. And, and so... Um, that, that presupposes no knowledge at all. It starts off explaining what the big numbers and the little numbers are, chapters and verses, because, because people don't know that. And the difference between the Old Testament, is, is it starts with nothing in their background. And people have used that simultaneously as a, an evangelistic tool, um, but also sometimes to ground baby Christians who's, who've got some proof text around from the Bible, but they don't know how the Bible works as a whole. You know? So there are tools like that around. Um, and uh, if, if, you, if you need more help, I'm sure there are some pastors here and at other churches that can answer that sort of question for the local area. Um, and if not, shoot me an email. I'll give you a lot more. Nowadays, there are a lot of, there's a lot of literature out there. Some of it's really good. Right over there. So how would you determine how to engage somebody depending upon your environment that you're in? Well, the Berkeley thing tonight's a bit odd. And when I've come in the past, I've had uh, six or 700 students, and I've given an address that opened up the Q&A. 
And what I like to do is to take a passage of scripture and expound it. So everybody gets a copy. I've done John 3 and the new birth and so on. But I explained it in a, in a, in a context for biblically illiterate people who explain what the new birth is and who Jesus is. And, and it's openly evangelistic. Um, but tonight I was supposed to be having a, a discussion under Veritas Forum um, banner with a professor from the university. And I was looking forward to it. Um, a, a woman, I won't mention her name, but for various reasons she couldn't come. It was canceled at the last moment. So the topic was already established. Uh, I forgot the exact wording, something like, um, how can I know that there's a God? Or how do you know that there's a real heaven to go to? Or so so it's, a, it's, a, it's an epistemological thing. And so now it's changed, so I'm going to be speaking for 30 to 40 minutes, then somebody's going to interview me for a few more, and then we'll open it up. It'll be a smaller crowd, but probably more directed at epistemology and uh, coming to faith and what truth is and stuff like that rather than expounding a passage. Um, so I will presuppose in that context that the people to whom I'm speaking don't know any Bible. That's the first thing. They'll never have heard of Abraham. They don't know the Bible has two testaments. Um, if, 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 if they have some notion of Christian morality, it's right-wing and bigoted. Um, so you, you assume a lot of things like that. And and um, that doesn't mean that everybody is there. There will be some Christians there, some baby Christians. But the point is that they will be able to understand what I'm saying. Um, but if I start going in and talking about... Um, well, one of the fundamental epistemological difficulties is that you don't believe in depravity. Depravity is a doctrine that is bound up with uh, uh, the doctrine of humankind. You have to get to know some biblical anthropology. Well, I've lost them already. I mean, it's taken me 30 seconds and I've lost the whole crowd. So, 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 so partly it's a way of say, saying these things. I'm going to be talking about anthropology and epistemology and depravity and all those kinds of things tonight. But to, to do so in ways that don't sacrifice what the truth is, but begin to question the assumptions of biblical illiteracy and, 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 and so on. And whoever, I, I think it was, I, I don't remember who sent it to me, but somebody sent me, the results of a survey of, of, of Berkeley students that was done some months back of, uh, on religion and this sort of thing. And they sent me the results. That was really very interesting. And that just helped me sharpen things up a little bit more, too, in terms of how I address things. Um, the, the big difference between working in uh, an area that has a more fundamentalist flavor and working in an area that uh, is more 21st century secular, the big difference is biblical illiteracy. And the question is how to get across biblical truth in a way that is biblically faithful and l letting the offense of the gospel be the offense of the gospel, but trying to avoid being offensive because I'm offensive. Okay, let's go back to at the back, San Francisco. <laughs> how you decide what to read. Ah, uh, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, it's it's a it's a different question than the first one. But uh, I just because I've started a book doesn't mean I'll finish it. Uh, some books are just too rubbishy or too elementary or too. Uh, you read the first two chapters and then dip in a later chapter and you already know where the thing is going, you know. And so, what's the point of reading any more of it? Um, more, moreover, when I've broken into a a, a new area, I mean. My, my training is in New Testament exegesis. 
but I've been doing university missions for 40 years. And the reason I wrote The Gagging of God, I'm not a philosopher. The Gagging of God has some exegesis in it, but it's got a lot of philosophy and culture comment and how to get the gospel across and stuff. That's not my area. I've been doing evangelism, as I say, in university campuses for 40 years, but I'm not a gifted evangelist. I do it partly because it's mandated of all Christians, and I do it partly for me because it guarantees that I keep in touch with what's going on in the contemporary generation. And, and so the reason I started working on, on, on the gagging of God was because I was witnessing before my eyes the questions changing from university students. I, I could list half a dozen questions that I started getting 20 years ago that I th- had never heard in the previous 20 years once. And as they changed, I, I had to change. What I, so I started doing some reading. And, and when I started reading Michel Foucault and, uh, and uh, Jacques Derrida and, and, and people, post, post, uh, postmodernism was in, um, I didn't understand them um, because I was brought up in French. I read them in English. I read them in French. I didn't understand them either way. <laughs> and it, it, it took me a while to get into them, you know. But eventually, I, I read them enough and talked to enough people. And, and after you read in a particular topic, uh, five books, eight books, ten books in an area, the next 50, you flip through because they're just saying the same thing. You know, they're quoting each other. And, and you, 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 you read them to find out, to find out uh, how they're different from the last 16. And, 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 and so... So the, the, the bibliography in the, gar- the Gagging of God is very impressive. And I, I didn't read about 95% of it. I mean... Um, <laughs> Dr. Well, Carson said that he did not... <laughs> now, that needs to be qualified. I mean, the, the, the first books in an area, I would read very carefully, footnotes and everything. But then you read faster and faster and faster. And finally, I could, quote, read a book on a particular topic in half an hour. Not because I read everything in it, because I read enough in it to know what it was going to say. And, 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 and so if, if you read for utility, you, you change your space of reading. You change your pace of reading. You change your, your purpose for reading. If, I, if I'm taking time off and I'm reading a whodunit, it uh, depends how interesting the whodunit is or how well it's written. If it's P.D. James and it's interesting, uh, yeah, go a little slower. If it's something I picked up in an airport or something, uh, I might not finish it. Um, so, uh, yeah, pick and choose. I, I think that one of the... One of the secrets to productive reading is, um, is, is, is variable speed reading. Some things need to be thought about and meditated on. You take notes. You file stuff away. I, I have a, a computer system for filing stuff that's pretty complicated. But on the other hand, I can retrieve stuff spectacularly. And it's not me. It's my co- I don't know anything. Computer knows everything. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, what I need to know is how to retrieve stuff. And uh, and don't get bogged down in stuff that's unprofitable. Do you do you have categories of things that you'll <coughs> say? I want to read some things in this category. Some things do you do you have lists like that you look at during the year? Uh, yes, <coughs> but it's it's partly because I'm an odd duck. In all, in all fairness, um, there, there's some people who are specialists in something or other, and, and all their serious reading is in that area. But when it comes right down to it. I'm a jack-of-all-trades. I mean, I, I do read broadly. But I would argue that pastors should be jacks-of-all-trades. I mean, that's an a- you, you, you can't spend your whole life reading, um, re- reading a book on nothing but divorce and remarriage, <laughs> you know? Um, or you're, you're going to become a specialist in the epistle of the Hebrews. Well, God knows that Hebrews is a great book, and maybe you're going to become a, enough of a specialist on it to write a commentary. That's fine, fine, fine. But at the end of the day, you're called to preach the whole counsel of God. 
And that means you need to be doing some reading on Old Testament, some New Testament, some work on Psalms, something on worship, something on prayer life, something on devotional literature, something on foreign missions, something on international history, something on uh, church discipline, something on and on and on and on and on. So uh, I try to make sure that I cover those areas in one form or another um, because in my heart I'm a pastor first. Do you see? You can't afford to be too narrow a specialist. His book on uh, pastor, scholar, and scholar's pastor. Yeah. Excellent. John Piper and I did that together. Uh, he, he, because he started off in scholarly ministry and ended up a pastor. I started off in pastoral ministry and ended up an academic. What can I say? We're both confused. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent book, though. Right here. So can you explain the spatialized hermeneutic of eschatology? Yes. Well, the realized eschatology or inaugurated eschatology part is along a timeline. So we're heading somewhere, but it's already lapped back. It's already started. It's already inaugurated. Well, I haven't said that yet. I've started with the inaugurated. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so that's it. The, the, the baseline is that it's, it's inaugurated eschatology, is, is that history is going somewhere, it's going to a climax, it's going to a new heaven and a new earth, but some of that's lapped back, it's already inaugurated. So that's along a timeline. But a spatial equivalent, it's spatial because it's a question about where are you. Uh, forget the timeline. Okay. <laughs> with, with the inaugurated eschatology is a timeline. Okay. Okay? The, the spatial bit is where are you? And now you are not only here, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's a spatial image. You see? Why isn't it equal? Did you say? You mean what? 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 What two things are equal? Oh, you mean why the spatial imagery is is a reflection of the timeline? Yeah. You see, in in the case of the timeline, you've got something that's go going this way that's lapping back. In the case of the spatial imagery. Um, but you're already back here. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Now you can explain it to the next dude. <laughs> it's now and not yet. Kind of the same concept a little bit. It's now and not yet. Now it's there and not here. Yeah. Or here and not there. Or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Back there. Would that be specifically with regard to small churches? What kind of collaboration would that? Okay, what kind of collaboration would be helpful for small churches to do? Okay, that varies <coughs> a little bit. The first thing I would say is, if you have churches that share the same theology, um, make sure the pastors meet regularly to pray for each other and support one another and learn to trust one another. Uh, you're not going to get collaboration between churches if you don't have collaboration between pastors. That takes some time. But it's it's part what the it's part of what the regional coalition chapters are trying to do. Um, I'd also say that one of the things that any church can do is to pray in the public pastoral prayer every Sunday for one of the churches in the area. 
Mark Dever, who's pastor of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. Uh, that's built into their DNA. Every Sunday you go to church, and he's playing for, praying for McLean Presbyterian, or he's praying for w- one of the other churches in the metro Washington area, edge of Maryland, edge of, of uh, uh, not, not only the, the D.C. area, but the edge of New York. Um, just nestled in there, and there are a lot of good Bible-teaching churches. And even if they disagree on this point or that point, um, he's praying for any church every Sunday morning. He's praying for one church by name every Sunday morning in the metro area um, as part of a collaborative, um, shared vision of the importance of the gospel um, faithfully declared in that area. Well, you start doing that, and it changes the psychology of your entire church, quite apart from the fact that God is a prayer-hearing and prayer-answering God. It means that you're minimizing uh, competition and you're, you're, you're stressing the importance of, of the collaborative enterprise. You're expressing something of unity of Christ, you see. And then you challenge other <coughs> churches in the area to do the same <coughs> thing with pastors getting together and so on. So you, you build that kind of stuff first. And then after that, there may be something to do with evangelism, shared evangelism, enterprise or whatever. One or two of our chapters in the, the regional flock of coalitions, in regions where they have a lot of small churches and none of them is big enough really to handle the church plant. We've had instances where three, four, five, six small churches have banded together to plant another church, even though um, one church is Presbyterian, another church is uh, Baptist, another church is Independent Bible Church, and so on. So they have some different ecclesiologies to them, but they're really deeply committed to the Reformed heritage of confessionalism and so on, so on, so on. And so they, they, they band together to, pr- to pay the salary of and whatever costs there are, do donate some families to, and, 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 and so on, this fledgling church until it gets off the ground. And what it will come out to be at the end, Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever, they don't care. Now, it takes a certain kind of maturity to get to that point, but for areas where you have a lot of small churches and, and the churches are too small to do much along church planting lines at this point, but could do some if they shared the task with others, that's another avenue too. But again, that doesn't just happen overnight. That, that happens out of, the, uh, out of a mix of a, of a fellowship of intercessory prayer and praying for one another and so on. Good. Over here, Gavin. Okay, so what's the profile of a lay leader and what things would you like to see a lay leader be learning? Is that correct? That's a huge question, brother. Um, part of because there are lay leaders and there are lay leaders. There are some lay leaders whose gift is going to be on oh, a large church organizing the crew that looks after the parking. Uh, I remember when I was pastor of a church in Vancouver, Vancouver, Canada, quite a number of years ago. Um, we, we, we had a guy who was appointed head of the deacons uh, head of head of the ushers, rather head of the ushers, and he was never going to lead a Bible study. He, he he didn't have the intellectual gifts for it, and he was a bit shy. In fact, in fact, I thought it was a bit of a dumb appointment, but uh, some people really wanted it, and so he took this as a calling from the Lord, and he came and asked, "What what do I have to know to be a good usher? What do I have to do?" And I went through the mechanics of it, you know, make sure 
this and that, make sure that the, the pews have their hymn books, or we, there weren't such a thing as hymn books in those days, <laughs> and 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 uh, and that the, the everything's in order, uh, if it's communion, that, that everything's looked after, um, but also to get to know the names of all the families in the church, and their kids, and when they come in the door, greet them by name and shake their hands. You'll find out eventually where they like to sit, and who's pregnant, and wish them well on the birthday. You know, but but that's part of good ushering as well. It's not just leading people up an aisle or some, some, something like that. Well, he took that on. We had the best ush church in Western Canada. I mean, you know, it was it, it was really one. so. When you say what what is required of, of of a lay leader, it depends a lot on what the job is, and and th- there may be a lay leader who takes on the job of of, of keeping the books. Well, to to, to find a, a CPA or just a good accountant who's who can do the arithmetic and is trustworthy and so on. That's a huge job to, to keep track of where we are in the fiscal year and where the budget is and, and so on. Um, and the bigger the char- church, the, the messier the job is. And um, But then beyond all of that, you're always looking for lay people who um, are learning enough Bible that they can teach it to others. So th- there, are, there are some, for, for example, evangelistic Bible studies where what we have done in the past is uh, find that there's one person, a lay person in that group who takes it the first time round, and, and you say, you, you see that they've got extra spark. They, they've got extra grasp. They've got extra interest. They take it once. When you run the seminar again, let's say it's seven weeks, run it the next seven weeks, maybe it's for an introductory study for new members or something like that. Um, then that time, you let them teach one of the units. You work at it with them. The next time, you co-teach it. The next time, they teach most of it, and you're backup. Time after that, they teach it by themselves, and they pull in somebody. And that means you've just passed on a job. You've delegated, and meanwhile, they're learning to teach and, and beginning to teach others. And you do that on enough things, and pretty soon you've got, you've got exponential uh, growth. You see, it, it takes a while to, to disciple people to, to handle the material well and and they have to be courageous enough to admit when they don't know the answers, and they'll find them. And they, they ask questions and find answers in a few more cycles, and there are fewer questions that they face that they don't know how to answer, you know? And, um, and the same is true for, for many levels of... Uh, out of that pool of lay people will also ultimately come your next, your, your next selection of elders, your, your next selection of, of, of students who are wondering about taking some courses online at Bible college or theological seminary or, or whatever. So, so, so that... You, you want to provide enough structures that people can move through the system and move up. By up, I don't mean to a superior position. I mean up to more knowledge, up to more utility, up to more usefulness, up, up, up to more influence. And, um, and th- there are usually ways of trying to, 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 to produce structures that will, will, will help lay people grow in that di- so sort of dimension. Then there, there are some people who just need help in with, with, um, with, with grieving families. Uh, organizing food for for um, families that's just been shattered by a suicide, you know, and to get people involved at, uh, in doing what they can do at those different levels, get them involved so that they take on responsibility and don't have to be told eventually what to do. It means you've suddenly got leadership developing, and it, it starts it starts with with tapping people on the shoulder and s- saying, you know, my my dear brother, I got something that. That I think you can really do for the Lord here, and and but pretty soon, if if that becomes the um, the modus operandi, then then 
then, then you find a whole wave of people coming through. One more thing. Um, develop a culture of thankfulness. Um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I still teach, took on a new president four years ago, David Dockery. I have received more thank you notes from David Dockery in the last four years than I received from the entire universe in the previous uh, <laughs> 66. I mean, he, he, he just writes thank you notes for everything. Your, your, your message in chapel was so wonderful. Oh, oh, thanks for your encouraging note to somebody or other. Uh, read your article. And so, I mean, it's just constant. Now, it's not because he's doing it for me. He's doing it for everybody. I sometimes wonder how he gets any work done. He's writing so many... <laughs> you know. But what, what he's done, though, as a result, has bred um, a culture of gratitude so that everybody's now writing everybody thank you notes. <laughs> We're just going to clog up the whole email system with, with thank you notes. But, but it means that there, there is an attitude of, of encouragement for lay ministry and every other kind of ministry that I think is really, really, really important in the context of the local church. The gift of Barnabas. Good. Right back there. Oh, dear so what is the future of evangelicalism, and, and why don't you write a book about it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, that was a he soft law, wasn't he it? Just, he just told me he is writing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, because I, I'm not far from finishing a book on the subject, uh, you press my button, and I could wrap it on for the next hour without getting out of first gear. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to uh, spare you the pain. Um, part of the problem is the very definition of evangelicalism. For some people, evangelicalism is a political label. It's got nothing to do with the theology. For a lot of people, probably the majority of Christians, evangelicalism is a sociological label. So you uh, meet the people who call themselves evangelicals and find out what they believe. And you find they've got virtually nothing in common because it, they, they vary all the way from high church Presbyterians to snake handlers, you know. And a lot of nominals in, in all of that. Then there's an historical approach to definition where you try to track out evangelical movements in history and find out where they align or dis don't align. And I say they all have some utility. But the only way that you can make the category evangelical really useful on the long term is with a theological definition. That is, evangelicals are those who believe, promote, and live out the evangel which is just another word for the gospel. And that means that you go back to Scripture again and again and again to find out what the Bible says about it. But then you're, at least you're going back to the Bible. And, and so the, the, if you do that kind of thing, what you discover is that there are millions and millions and millions of evangelicals on the sociological axis who are not evangelicals at all on the theological axis, which is a polite way of saying they're not converted. They don't know the Lord. And there are some... Missouri Synod Lutherans and some reform types who never call themselves evangelicals. Who are? By a theological definition. Do, do, do you see? So, so when you ask, what's the future of evangelicals? Well, which, which axis? Because they all produce a different cluster. Do, 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 do you see? So if you're saying evangelicalism at large, well, um, it's declining in numbers. It's declining in influence. It's declining in numbers. And by and large, I'm thankful to God for it. Be because most of what's declining 
is, um, is, is the nominalism. And, and, and now it's beginning to cost a little more to be an evangelical in a theological sense. It's becoming a little clearer who's a Christian and who's not. And so I'm all for sharpening up that line. If you ask what sector of so-called evangelicalism is growing, uh, then in North America, it's the sector that is theologically most robust. So the Acts 29 churches and groups like that that are church planting, that are confessional, that are uh, robust and so on. It's not, it's, it's not the lowest common denominator theology types. They're not growing. They're, 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 they're wimping out. So at a time when most people would say that the culture, most Christians of just about any persuasion, would say that the culture is in some sort of decline on moral grounds or whatever, and gaining some grounds as well, um, but but most most moral declines. Um, nevertheless, uh, there is another robust group coming along behind, uh, uh, fired by idealistic millennials, who really have come to understand what the gospel is and want to live it out system systemically, and they've got their own hang-ups and so on. But don't we all? Meanwhile, you know, I've seen waves of students come through Trinity over the over the years, and of all the waves that I've seen, I mean, uh, the emerging church wave 15 years ago the Toronto Blessing Wave 25 years ago. I mean, I've seen them all. And, um, and, and I would say that the current wave coming through is the one that I'm happiest with. Um, they're, they're the, the, the emerging church wave went through and we're basically saying to the professor, shove over and I'll show you how it's done. This group comes through and they want to be mentored. They want to know how to plant churches in multiracial communities. I've seen more of my students go to the Muslim world in the last uh, 10 years than in the previous 30. You know? um, this is a great time to be alive. So it's difficult. It's a little more challenging, but bring it on. And so whether this will end up in judgment and disaster in, in North America, God knows we deserve it, or whether it'll swing a pendulum in due course and there will be Reformation, revival, I don't know. What I like to say is I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a non-profit organization. <laughs> <laughs> but, so I, I, I refuse to predict what's going to happen, but I'm far from being discouraged. Book coming out summertime, fall? I, uh, I never predict when it's coming out until it's gone in. Okay. It, uh, I hope to get it in the next couple of Look months. Look for it. Yeah. Look for it then. Yeah, I think we had someone in our Arabic over here. Okay.
Okay, so two questions. First is how do you answer someone who would say that because you're born in a country, that's the religion you have? And the second one, how to answer the question about is Jesus or something, is it a binary question or is it multiple? That's the questions, okay? Well, um, first of all, I'd want to begin by saying uh, I'm grateful to hear that you're boldly witnessing. I, mean, that, I think that's wonderful. And you represent uh, a new generation coming along that is prepared to do that. Bully on you. Um, the next thing I'd say is, is that um, on, with respect to the first question, it really is important to see that there are Christians all around the world not Christendom, I want to distinguish pretty early on from mere Christendom, but there are Christians in Japan, there are Christians in China, there are Christians in India, there are Christians in uh, many, many countries, all the countries of Africa, there are Christians in the Middle East, there are Christians in the Central Asia, and, and so on. Um, and and, and to, to argue <coughs> that, uh, that um, uh, it, it's merely a sociological form of determinism, is simply um, culturally illiterate. Um, th they then tend to say, yes, but the countries that are Christian in India tend to produce uh, Christians. The, countries, the, the, the families that are Hindu in India tend to produce Hindus, so that it becomes not a sort of a cultural determinism, but a family determinism. And I would say, why should you be surprised at that? Shouldn't Christians want to pass on their faith to others? Shouldn't Muslims want to pass on their faith to others? The question is not whether families are trying to pass things on to others, but which one is true. And you can't duck the truth question by simply saying families are passing on their different perceptions of what is the truth. And then I sometimes tell stories of times when I've lectured in the Middle East or someplace like that where people are not doubting the possibility of knowing truth. They're raising the... If I'm in Dubai or someplace, nobody's asking me whether there is such a thing as truth. They're asking me what is the truth and how do you know? Well, that's a different set of questions. It means that the, it feels more like the first century. It's fun. Um, so, as for the second question, um, the way I tend to put it is: is in a biblically illiterate generation, and it many universities, it is biblical literacy. Uh, there are two things that go up students' noses. If I start talking about the Trinity, nobody's offended. If I start talking about substitutionary atonement or the deity of Christ, oh, is that what Christians believe? Oh, a bit odd, but okay, if you say so. They're not offended by it. There are two things that, that evoke offense. Number one, a robust view of sin, where the attitude by way of comeback is, who are you? Who is God to tell me what to to do what to believe or 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 uh, what the truth is or how to behave or establish morals moral moral categories are socially defined um, and that leads you into a much bigger set of questions about uh, about um, uh, it's what Charles Taylor calls the question of authenticity um, where, where where people uh, uh, live an authentic life provided they live a life that's consistent with what they claim they, they believe no matter how weird their beliefs are and that's where this generation is. I sometimes spend some time unpacking that and deconstructing it. Um, but the second thing that they take offense at is any claim for the exclusiveness of the gospel. And my first comeback on that one usually is, I think the difference between you and me is that um, 
I have more respect for their religions than you do. What? Because, you see, I want to hear them on their own terms. I have many Muslim friends who don't think that Islam and Christianity are the same religion. It's, it's not that we're all in the same overlapping set of concentric circles so that we're all basically saying the same thing. I know of a case, it's secondhand, but I know of a case in a major Western university a few years ago where the lecture was in cultural anthropology was going on about how all religions are saying the same thing and and um, and and they're, they're, they're explained psychologically and on and on and on and on and on. And there was a young woman student in the class who was getting more and more and more upset and finally she exploded. She's, she says, I'm Iroquois, First Nation. She said, you people have taken away our land, you've taken away our heritage, you've taken away our culture, and now you're trying to take away our religion. Now, I can respect that be because there's acknowledgement of difference. What she was hearing was somebody trying to plaster all the religions in the same, in, 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 in the same smear so that as a result there was nothing distinctive. Now, whether I think that she was right in her form of Iroquois nature religion is another issue. I don't. I'd want to talk to her about Jesus and how he comes to all nations. But on the other hand, to, 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 to hide behind the supposition that we're all saying the same thing usually means that the people who are claiming that don't know much about any of them. Islam is not saying the same thing. Hinduism is not saying... We'll start with Hinduism. Hinduism has literally millions of gods. Nobody knows them all. We insist there's only one. They can't both be right. They can't be. And if at the end of the day, uh, people try to duck down farther and say, yes, but we're all interested in sort of spiritual life or something like that, then I'd say, who are you to tell the in Hindus what, what their r religion is? It's not really about a m 17 million gods. It's about spiritual life. I mean, to get your answer, you've got to dictate to all of these religions what they really are. I think I'm more respectful of them than you are. I want to listen to what they think they are. So you, you have to undermine the presuppositions, I think, that, that, that undergird those, those, those kinds of uh, skeptical stances. They're formulaic. Most students have not thought them through at all. We have time for one more sneak-in question right there. Let's take you right there. Sure. might be a question, how do you square election with personal responsibility, response? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, it's another very good question. I think the thing that you have to face first before you try addressing <laughs> it directly is an assessment of how much that sort of question is a serious question, how much it really is an intellectual barrier, and how much it's merely a smokescreen so that they can avoid having to think about the gospel at all. It just becomes a defensive posture. And if it's merely a defensive posture and it's not really a serious question, then the way to answer it is different from the way to answer it if it really is a serious question. If it's really a serious question, i got some things for them to read. 
Um, uh, there's a lovely little paperback book written by Jim Packer 30 years ago called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's not, not a bad place to start. Um, I wrote a book called How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. Chapters 11 and 12 deal with that. But those are serious answers to serious questions. And, and if they're willing to do some, re and they're, they're more advanced books than, than either of those, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to give you a bibliography as long as your arm. I mean, uh, there is serious answer to serious questions for, for serious questioners. But if this is just a smokescreen, <coughs> Uh, then I might play around with it just a wee bit. Um, you mean you believe in election? Or are you raising the question because you don't believe that God is sovereign? Oh, I do believe that God is sovereign. Why? Because the Bible says so. But doesn't the Bible also say because uh, it's to say that he who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved? Doesn't the Bible say that? Well, yeah, I, I suppose. Well, why don't you defend that as equally as you defend the other? So, in other words, what purports to be a logical objection soon turns out to raise some fundamental questions about whether they're logical at all. At that point, they've got a choice of saying, well, the Bible, therefore, isn't, a logi isn't logical, so I reject the whole thing. Okay, reject the whole thing, then. What are you going to do with the historical Jesus? Who's he? So, y but on the other hand, sometimes it, it becomes just such a turnoff. What they w want to do is throw that in your face and then expect you to go away and sulk. Um, that 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 they don't want an answer back. They they will reject an answer back. Oh, you're just preaching at me again. Oh, you're, that's just too theological, or whatever, whatever. In which case, you've discovered that they really are in the other camp, and they're not serious in any case. They're they're just hiding behind a smokescreen. So, a lot of how you decide to handle that depends on the relationship you've got with them, and whether they're serious. Whether whether this is happening over dessert with friends or. Whether you take them out to Starbucks and you can have a nice cup of chai or something and talk talk at greater length or whatever you, you know, um, and, and sometimes the best thing to do is, uh, you know, that is a thoughtful question, and I'm willing and eager to discuss it with you. But let's do it over a cup of chai, and then set a time to do it, and bring along a couple of books and so on. And then you at least begin to find out whether they're serious or not. I, I think what I'm saying for several of these questions is is the Puritans used to speak of the, the, the Christian pastor uh, in medical terms. What's required is diagnosis before prescription. And so sometimes when you perceive a problem, you've, you've got to make some intelligent diagnosis about what's really going on before, before you come up with an answer. And uh, a, a merely intellectual, um, structured argument is not always the best way forward. O occasionally, the best answer for some questions is, I don't know, but I'd be happy to find out with you. Give him a big hug and say, can we talk about it? You know? Well, I want to thank Dr. Carson. Thank all of you for coming. <laughs> <doing that too. laughs> and,